All right, well, I want to get right into the Word. Uh, for those of you that have been with us the last few weeks, you know this, but we've been doing something a little bit different here at the end of the summer, and we're going to finish up today on Labor Day weekend. But rather than preaching uh, my typical uh, style of preaching and having a topic and taking a text and, and moving right into it, we've been doing a Q&A series, questions and answers. And I've taken several questions from our church family here and, uh, and I've just been taking the last two Sundays, and I'll do it again today, to answer some questions from the Bible. So this is not going to feel like a, a conventional, a traditional sermon maybe, but I'm going to try to slip in a little preach every once in a while if I can. But I want to just take some time to answer some more questions that, that you might have. I, I had the opportunity, my family and, and Cheryl and her family went down on Friday to Washington, D.C., and we got to go down there and... Uh, just go through the, the museums and see all the monuments, and uh, I think we walked over eight miles, and so, uh, you know, you've ever done that, you, you know it's, it's, uh, it's a long trek. But we had an opportunity to look at a lot of uh, just significant things in America's history, and really, let me just share my heart for this series has been, aside from maybe just answering some of the questions that's troubled some of us, Really, my heart for this series, and again today, is that you and I would come to the understanding that God's Word can be trusted. That's it. I don't know what question you have. I don't know what's rolling around in your mind. It, it's probably so far removed from some of the questions that I'm going to answer today. But in answering these questions and the ones that we've tackled for the last few weeks, my hope is this, that you would come away saying God's Word can be trusted. This, this is God's self-disclosing revelation to man of himself. Everything that I need to know is right here in this word. And you can stake your life on God's word and on his promises. That is what I want you to know if you get nothing else. But I thought since I've kind of been in a patriotic uh, mood over the weekend and uh, was down there looking at lots of monuments and statements that I would share a couple of opening statements from some famous uh, people in America's history about the Word of God. George Washington said this, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. He has my vote. John Quincy Adams said this, He said, So great is my veneration of the Bible, that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens of their country and respectable members of society. Abraham Lincoln. I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Woodrow Wilson said this, I ask every man and woman in the audience that from this day on, they will realize that part of the destiny of America lies in their daily perusal of this great book. Let me read one more from Douglas MacArthur. He said, believe me, sir, never a night goes by, be I ever so tired, but I read the word of God before I go to bed. That's a good principle to live by. One more. Herbert Hoover. He said, the whole of the inspiration of our civilization springs from the teachings of Christ and the lessons of the prophets. To read the Bible for these fundamentals is a necessity of American life. It's no wonder when you say, where did we go wrong? God's word 
is our foundation. It anchors us as a nation morally. And more than that, it guides us spiritually as God's people. And so today I want to tackle a few questions and, uh, and again, point you to God's word as the final authority. So here's the first question uh, that I want to answer today. Someone asked, what was Paul's thorn? Maybe you've wondered that before. Now, before I even try to answer this question, I'm going to tell you, there's no definitive answer that I can give you, but let me, let me take you to the text, and for time's sake, we're going to put these on the screen, and, and I'll reference them. But the text where this question comes from, what was Paul's thorn, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. This is Paul's testimony. He says three times in verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. And a lot of people have wondered, what was Paul talking about when he said, I I asked God to take away this thorn in my flesh? It certainly wasn't a physical thorn, a splinter. What was it he was dealing with? Well, the answer may be in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus called the thorn a weakness. He didn't call it that. Jesus did. He said, it's your weakness. But in verse 10, he expounded on it. And he said, in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. So maybe the thorn that Paul was dealing with was the, the hard time he was having everywhere he went. Everywhere he preached the gospel. He was being persecuted. He was being insulted. He was dealing with hardships. And in fact, when, when God... Uh, when Jesus met Saul on the road, Saul, who's now called Paul, he met him on the road to Damascus. He saved him. He struck him down with a blinding light. God spoke to a man named Ananias and said, go and speak to Paul. Lay hands on him and anoint him so that he can be healed. And Ananias was afraid to go because of the reputation that Paul had as a persecutor of the church. And in response to Ananias being afraid to go, here's what the Lord said to Ananias in Acts 9.16. He said, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. So from day one, Paul was going to face extreme, difficult, uphill battles in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people think that the thorn that he faced was physical illness. We know from scripture that Paul struggled with physical illness and malady of some form. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, look at this verse. It says, Paul said in verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. So in other words, it was, it was an inconvenience. They had to really kind of help him and take care of him. Instead, he says, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God as if I were Christ Jesus himself. So some physical illness that made Paul a burden to those that he hosted. That kind of changes our perception of Paul, right? If you had this picture of like the sharp-dressed evangelist that comes in and blows everybody away with his oratory skills. Paul said, I, I apologize that I was a burden to you when I came because of my illness. 
And a lot of people believe, and I tend to think this way, that maybe the thorn was uh, his poor eyesight. Now, whether that was the illness that he talked about or if it was an effect of the illness or maybe it was some residual effect of God blinding him on the road to Damascus. But but Paul said in the next verse there in Galatians, in verse 15, he said, where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me, which might allude to the fact that Paul's struggle was his eyes. There was another time when Paul was standing on trial before the Sanhedrin, and, and they said something to him, uh, and, and Paul retaliated. He said something harsh back, and when he did, the people that were standing around him said, how dare you say something like that to the high priest? And Paul responded to him. He said, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So maybe Paul couldn't even see the person that was, that was rebuking him in that moment. Another thing that we see in scripture is that Paul always had somebody taking dictation for him when he wrote his letter. In the great, great uh, letter to the Roman church, Paul said, uh, well, actually Paul didn't say, but right in the middle of his letter, in his closing greetings, in verse 22 of chapter 16, it says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And there was one rare occasion when Paul wrote the letter himself. Or at least just part of the letter. And that was in Galatians chapter 6 verse 11. He said, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So here's the bottom line about this question. I don't know. We don't know exactly what Paul's thorn was. But here's what we do know. And this is the thing that's important and the reason that I would even take time to emphasize it this morning. Here's what we know about Paul, and here's what we know about everyone in the room this morning. We all have a limitation. We all have a thorn in our flesh. There's something in your life, there's something in my life, that if we had it our way, we would say, Lord, please remove this from me. Lord, it would be easy for me to do the thing that you've called me to do. It would be easier for me to be who you want me to be and go where you want me to go if I didn't have this limitation in my life. But here's the the powerful part that, that God told Paul that we ought to learn ourselves. That God looked at what he saw as a limitation and he actually said, it's an invitation. It's not a limitation. This thorn in your flesh is an invitation for you to have a demonstration of the power of God through your weakness. So I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's relational or maybe it's even historical. Something in your past that that has hindered you. And you would say, God, if you would just remove this limitation, then I'll go ahead and serve you. I'll be the husband you want me to be. I'll be the father you want me to be. I'll be the Christian you want me to be. If you'll remove this limitation. And God's word to Paul and God's word to us this morning is my grace is sufficient for you. Even in your weakness, my power is on display. And so I want to flip the question to you this morning and not say what was Paul's thorn. But let me just ask you, what's your thorn? And more importantly this morning, what, how do you see it? That thing that bothers you, that, that habit that you can't get over, that, that, that memory that you can't forget about, that hindrance in your physical body. Don't see it as a limitation. See it for the invitation that it is for God's glory to be on display in your life. His power is perfected in our weakness. 
Let me give you another question this morning. Now, here's a question that has to do with creation. And uh, the question is this. What does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Now, let me just say this before I even jump into this question. I know, I'm going to answer this question, and I know in answering this question, I'm going to I'm going to probably cause about 20 more questions to come into your mind. So I want to answer the question, but I also want to give you a a resource so that you can study this out on your own, because I know I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions about this topic, but I do think it's very fascinating. You're not going to find the word dinosaur in the Bible, so don't bother looking for it. One of the reasons you're not going to find the word is because, uh, you know, the King James Bible, for example, was published in 1611. In 1611, we got the King James Bible, and the word dinosaur wasn't invented until 1841 by Sir Richard Owen, who, by the way, was a creationist. That means that as a scientist, he believed that God created the heavens and the earth and and all that we know and see, including man, in six consecutive 24-hour periods. He was a creationist. He coined the word dinosaur. So we don't find the word dinosaur in the Bible, but there are several words that could possibly be interpreted as dinosaur. And they didn't choose to interpret it that way. But the Hebrew word is tanin. And that word means dragon. Now, there's legends about dragons all over the world. I mean, in every culture, there's legends about dragons. Also, there's legends all over the world of a great flood. In, in, in nations and in uh, civilizations that have no concept or introduction to the word of God, they have, they have legends of dragons, they have legends of floods. And most scientists will tell you that though oftentimes the legends are exaggerated and, and they're, you know, they're stretched and they're, you know, made fanatical, that most legends stem from truth. Something that started that, and when you see a consistent legend all throughout the world, It's very possible that it started with dinosaurs, and that's where the legend came from. But if you want to answer this question, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Here's what you can't do. You can't can't take what you think you know about dinosaurs and then try to find it in the Word of God. You can't do that. What you have to do is you have to start with the authority of God's Word. And that's the principle that we're talking about throughout this whole three-week series. You start with what the Word of God says because we know it's true. It's authoritative. And then you try to see what the Bible teaches us and explains about dinosaurs. That's different than taking everything that you've been taught and you think you understand about dinosaurs and then trying to proof text it in the Word of God and and finding a way to explain it. So if we start with the Word, here's some things that we know. On day six, God created the animals, the land animals. On day six of creation, that means God created dinosaurs. We also know from scripture that on day six, God created man in his own image. Now, doesn't that sound a lot different than the 69 million year gap that you were taught that dinosaurs roamed the earth before mankind? If we go with the word of God, if we understand what God's revealed about creation, on day six, God created the animals. And on day six, God created Man, And if you take all the dates of the Bible and you put together all the information that we have recorded in the Word of God, what you discover is that the earth is about 6,000 years old. Now, 
I was just in Washington outside of the Smithsonian uh, Natural Science. And there's there's a big uh, tree that's there outside with a plaque that says, this is a 200 million year old tree right outside of the museum. The Bible communicates to us that the earth is about 6,000 years old and that God created animals on the same day he created man. So how does that work? I mean, is there any, is there any evidence in the Bible that, that God, uh, that, that man and, and animals, dinosaurs were together in the earth? I'm glad I asked. Job, chapter 40, look at this verse. Look at behemoth. This is God speaking to Job. Which I made along with you. Same day, day six of creation. And which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. Now some people might try to say, you know what, that's the elephant. That's, but, but listen to this next part of the description. Its tail sways like a cedar. Massive. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God. And yet its maker can approach it with a sword. In other words, nobody else can approach it with a sword, this massive animal. But its maker can approach it with a sword. He goes on in the next verse to talk about another sea creature called Leviathan, who, who's in the waters, a massive, a massive beast in the ocean. So I, I know what you're thinking, you know, man, dinosaurs, you watched Jurassic World this summer. You're going, is that even possible? I mean, for people to exist with T-Rex running around, you know, just like thrashing people the way we see in the movies? Let me give you a verse. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Listen to this part. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So according to Genesis, mankind and the animal kingdom were vegetarians. So God created the lion, the tiger, and the T-Rex as vegetarians in the garden. And he assigned to them all the plants and the fruits of the earth for food. So consider that. In fact, God didn't even give mankind the opportunity or the, the privilege of eating meat until after the flood in Noah's day. The Bible says in Genesis 9, God speaking to Noah. In Genesis 9 verse 3, he says, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So, you know, most of what we know about dinosaurs, I mean, let's be honest, we, we know it from the movies. And here's a little thing we need to remember about the movies. They're made to tell stories and sell tickets. And the truth is, dinosaurs are animals that God created. They're not monsters. They're animals that God created. And in the beginning, he created them to be vegetarians. 
Now, science would say, look at their teeth. I mean, some of them are clearly, you know, created to, to eat flesh and to rip apart flesh. But uh, I, I didn't bring a picture this morning, but uh, you ought to just Google the skeleton of a fruit bat. That thing looks like a velociraptor. That thing's got some nasty teeth. Or the skull of a panda bear. Some, you, you know what fruit bats eat, don't you? Take a wild guess. Fruit. So God gave some of the dinosaurs really sharp teeth so that they could crush through cantaloupes and pineapples and watermelons. And at some point after the fall in Genesis 9, God allowed mankind to change their diet. And at some point after sin entered the world, the animal kingdom began to change its diet as well. But it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine that at one time they were all vegetarians because the Bible communicates to us a day when Christ is going to establish his kingdom in the earth again and the animal kingdom is going to go back to the original diet that they had in Eden. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 7 when Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom in the earth it says the cow will feed with the bear their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. So Here's another question that came to my mind when I was trying to answer your question about dinosaurs. How did God fit all the dinosaurs on Noah's Ark? I mean, if if dinosaurs were a part of creation. So here's what I've learned. The average size of a dinosaur is a sheep. So I I know, you know, the ones that get our attention are the big ones, but the average size of a dinosaur was a sheep. And here's another misunderstanding we have about Noah's Ark. We think, oftentimes, two of every kind of animal, we think that means every species. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Noah was to bring two of every kind. In other words, there were two canines, two dogs. Maybe there were two wolves. But there weren't two black labs, two golden retrievers, and two chihuahuas on the ark. There were two of every kind. And when you just look at kinds, there's, there's less than 50 kinds of dinosaurs. And so it's very, very likely and very believable that Noah could fit all of the kinds of animals on the ark. When you look, and you don't have to guess how big the ark was, the Bible gives the dimensions. When you look at the dimensions of the ark, you discover that it's the same capacity of 522 railroad stock cars. And in fact, you can even see it now. You don't even have to guess. Because this summer down in Kentucky, they opened an exhibit, a life-size ark. You can go down there. Plan a vacation. Go see the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. And you'll see all of the animals in their cages, including dinosaurs. Right there on display, you can see how they perceive that God made all of that happen. So here's a question that a lot of people would naturally ask about dinosaurs. Okay, then what happened to the dinosaurs that were on the Ark that God saved? Now, I know this is going to blow your mind, but I'm, I'm just going to share this with you. They died. I know you weren't expecting that. They died. Now, most of the fossils that we find today are, are animals that, were, that died in the flood. But for those that, that were preserved, those of each kind that, that died, that's not uncommon. In fact, a great number of animals have died since the flood. Statistics say that in the last 350 years alone, over 400 species of animals have disappeared from the earth by extinction. 
They died. So God told Noah to uh, bring the animals into the ark. And I do believe that that included dinosaurs. So what about the evidence that dinosaurs lived millions and millions of years ago? 69 million years before people were ever on the earth. Here's God's answer to that question. When we look at a rock and we try to date it and say where it came from. God said to Job in Job verse 38 and verse 4. He said, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. See, the reality is when we dig this stuff up, it doesn't come with labels. It doesn't come with instructions. You know, creationist Ken Ham went to the Grand Canyon, and he was standing there, and he was peering down into the Grand Canyon, and there was a, a park ranger that was there, and the park ranger said to Ken Ham, he said, do you realize that just a little bit of water in a long, long time caused all of this? And Ken Ham looked back at him, and he said, do you realize that a whole lot of water in just a little bit of time caused all of this? See, the reality is, evolutionists, are trying to explain the effects of a flood that they don't believe in. And so, where were you when the foundation of the earth was laid? That's the, really the most confusing time, thing about understanding dinosaurs and, and all of that. It comes back to trying to, to date the earth and all of those things. I want to challenge you, parents, I want to challenge you to challenge your kids to study, to be studious. When we serve God, we don't come by faith and check our brains in at the door. Apply yourself to knowledge, but do it in a way that you begin with the foundation of God's word. Say, this is what we know to be true, now let's learn. Let's study. I'm not anti-science, and neither is the Bible. In fact, science proves the Bible. The more they discover, the more authoritative we know the word of God to be in our day. We may have somebody sitting in kids' church right now who's going to be the next great scientist. The cure for cancer may be sitting in our kids' ministry right now. Challenge your kids to study, to learn, to grow in knowledge and in insight, but to do it from the foundation that God's word is absolutely trustworthy. It's reliable. We can build on the foundation of truth that we have in God's word. Now, I want to give you a resource because I told you I would. It's a, a website called Answers in Genesis. Answersingenesis.org. They've got more articles than you have time to read, I can promise you. And there's a great link to a kid's site with little videos, little two-minute clips that explain the dinosaurs and even, even talk about you know, things like Cro-Magnum Man and where all of that came from and, and how that's not in the Bible, that God didn't have like a practice round on creation before he perfected Adam and Eve. We were created in the image of God. It only took one try. God made man in his own image. And so th- this website helps kids to... To understand that, I want to encourage you to uh, introduce your kids to it as they start, you know, coming home and studying dinosaurs. It's fascinating stuff, but we have God's authoritative word right here. Let me give you another question that has to do with creation, real quick. It's a question that uh, a lot of people uh, struggle to to believe creation because of the question of where did Cain's wife come from? You know, Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. The Bible's very clear. Uh, about that and then they had uh, three sons they had Cain and they had Abel and then they had Seth and so a lot of people wonder well where did Cain uh, Cain get his wife because the Bible says that he went out and he married and he he had a family the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20 Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living 
Now, there's a lot of other verses we could go to to emphasize this fact that the story of creation and the story of redemption is closely tied to the reality that we're all a part of one race, the human race. That God didn't create Adam and Eve and then start creating over here and then start creating different people over here. We all come from Adam's bloodline. The Bible teaches that very clearly. But here's what it says in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. So it's clear from Scripture, because we're all from Adam's race, that Cain had to marry one of his sisters. It's the only explanation that we have from God's Word. Cain married one of his sisters. And and to be honest, it's not that dissimilar from what you and I do. Because we're all from Adam's fallen race. We all marry siblings. The difference is, hopefully, you didn't marry anyone that was closely related to you. You understand? We want some distance. And we would say, well, wait a minute, isn't that wrong? I mean, the Bible says it's wrong to marry a, a, a close relative. And it does say that in Leviticus. But it doesn't say that until the days of Moses. This is long after sin had in, entered the human story. Uh, and, and God says to Moses, it's not good uh, that anyone should marry a close relative. Before Moses was Abraham. Abraham is called the father of our faith. Abraham married his half-sister. And God doesn't seem to have a problem with that in the story. And there's a reason for it, because when, at, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, they were perfect. Their DNA was perfect. Their genes were perfect. There was, there was no mutation. Cain and Abel were created. They were almost perfect. And, and early on, the, the DNA and the genes of, of mankind was pure, that it didn't run the same risk. You could marry a, someone that is a closer relative, whereas now, you know, because of sin, we've just gone downhill. We've gone farther and farther downhill, and, and our genes are contaminated. And the hope is that, that your good genes are going are gonna to overpower the bad genes in someone that is not a close relative, and you're not going to have defective or deformed children. Whereas if you marry someone close to your bloodline, you're going to have the same bad genes, and there's going to be some kind of a mutation and some kind of a birth defect involved. But early on, that wasn't so much of a problem. Because God had created man in his own image, and their DNA was not as contaminated as ours is. Let me, let me give you one more question. Can I give you one more? One more question. What is the first, second, and third heaven? What is the first, second, and third heaven? This is another uh, reference to something that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 through 4. He said these words. He said, I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, most theologians agree that he was talking about himself. It was kind of a a humble way in that day of of not boasting so much, but actually in the context he was boasting. Uh, He was defending his ministry. And so he was speaking about himself. 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. 
So Paul is defending his ministry against these super spiritual elitists that think that they're more because they've had revelations or because they've had dreams or they've had experiences. And Paul says, well, hey, I went up to the third heaven. And he says it was 14 years ago from the time he wrote this, which is most likely during the time of his first missionary journey. When he went to Lystra, the Bible says he preached and the people stoned him. They stoned him to death and they dragged him outside of the city, leaving him for dead. Then the Bible says that his disciples, they gathered around him, and he got up and he went back into the city. Many people believe, I believe, that Paul died in that moment. I think they stoned him to death, and they drug him out convinced that he was dead. Now, Paul says, I don't know if it was out of body or if it was just a vision, but in that moment, some point in his life, he, ha- he went to heaven. And we know people that have had stories like that, that have come back and said, man, I had this experience. I saw a light, or I saw Jesus, or, or I saw a loved one. And Paul was saying, I had that kind of experience in God's presence. Now, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. All through the Old Testament, heaven is usually a plural word. It's... It, it's Plural. In Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show forth the works of his hands, etc., etc. When we read through the scriptures, we hear things like this. A bird flies through the heavens. But then we hear a reference to outer space referred to as the stars in the heavens. And so what we're talking about is different levels. We have the birds that fly below the clouds. We have the atmosphere above the clouds. We have the, the firmament where the rain is. And then we have outer space. They're saying the heavens, and then he refers to the third heavens, the highest heavens. That's the place where God dwells. You know, when the Russians came back, uh, the cosmonauts came back from the moon in Sputnik, this statement was made arrogantly. uh, Gagarin flew into space, but he did not see God there. And of course he didn't, because he didn't fly high enough. And that's really what Paul was talking about. He's not saying that there's levels, like if you just, maybe you're barely a good Christian, you're going to just get on the first floor, but some of us, were going to be in the penthouse. He wasn't saying there's levels of heaven. He was saying the heavens, the skies, the clouds, the atmosphere, outer space, and then there's that place where God dwells in the highest heaven. And that's, that's an encounter that, that Paul speaks of having. And, and the greatest story is this. Because maybe you've heard those stories before, people going and and experiencing heaven and then coming back to earth and and living their life to tell about it. An even greater story than that is the reality that God himself and Jesus stepped out of the highest heaven. He came down and he lived on the earth among us. He died in our place. He rose from the grave and he ascended all the way back to the highest heavens. And the Bible says he sits at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for you and me. That's an awesome story. That's a powerful story. And I want to encourage you today that you can have confidence in whatever you face, in whatever you're going through, that Jesus himself has come down out of the highest heavens. John says this, in the beginning was the word, all the way back at creation. And the word was with God and the word was God. And in about verse 14 of John 1, it says, but the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Message Bible says, and God became a man and moved into the neighborhood. He stepped down into our story. That's what we celebrated at the table of the Lord earlier, that Jesus stepped down into our story. 
that he was acquainted with our suffering, that he became like us. And then he made a way for us to get back to heaven. So we don't need an outer body experience. We don't need a vision. We don't need to hear somebody's firsthand report of what it looks like on the other side because they came back. We have this book right here and a savior who started on the other end and stepped down into our story and said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, I want to take a moment here this morning at the conclusion of this service. There's a lot more questions that, that we, could have, we could have answered today. and Maybe they'll make for some good Sunday night services this fall. But I want to end where we begin. I, I love what Charles Spurgeon said, the great prince of preachers. He said, I take a text and then I make a beeline for the cross. Because that's where it all comes back to. Whether the topic is heaven or hell or creation or dinosaurs or your children or your marriage, it all comes back to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. It's at the cross that we find the mercy of God. And outside of this incredible book, I just quoted you earlier, Psalm 19, that says the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says that we are without excuse because creation itself testifies of God. But outside of this written word of God, we don't know that that God, who the sun, the moon, and the stars declares through creation... And through the anatomy of, of mankind, the, the consistency of creation, that God, we don't know outside of this book that that God sent his son Jesus into the world to be our savior. We don't know that he lived a sinless life. We don't know that he performed miracles, that he taught multitudes, that he died on the cross, that three days later he rose from the grave and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Outside of this book, we don't have that special revelation of God. But the good news is God has given us his word this morning. He's given his word for you and for me, not just to be a reference for debate on cultural issues, but the Bible says this, thy word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light for my path. That's what God's word is for you today. That's what God's word is for me, if, if, it's, if it's not that, then it's nothing. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it penetrates, the Bible says. This is what the word wants to do right now in this moment. This is what the word has been doing all morning penetrates the word says Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow here's what the word does it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
I think it was D.L. Moody that once said, this word will do one of two things. Either this word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this word. But the word of God wants to perform surgery on our hearts. When we open it up and we yield to it, we say, God, come back to your word. Come back to your truth. I come back to the gospel. I come back to what you have said to be true. And I submit my life. I submit my opinion, my knowledge, my insight. I humble myself to your word. And in doing that, God will begin to lead you and guide your life. And you, you may be here today and you've got questions that have kept you from surrendering your life to God. Because you don't know the answer. Maybe something that happened in your past. Maybe somebody that died unexpectedly. Maybe you were abused or mistreated. And you've got a why God question mark over your soul that will not allow you to surrender. Maybe you're here today and you've got one of those questions. If God was good, why would he? And the enemy would love for you to end your life with a question mark. But Jesus came to be the answer. The way, the truth, and the life. He is the answer to your question. So I want to pray for you this morning. And I want to invite you to, in just a moment, we're going to bow our heads.